Welcome to the American Cinematographer Podcast. Go behind the scenes with today's top filmmakers as they discuss the techniques they bring to the art of motion imaging. Welcome to American Cinematographer's Berlinale 2011 Wrap-Up Podcast. My name is Ian Stasikevich, a contributing writer for American Cinematographer magazine. At the Berlinale, you're exposed to many different facets of world cinema in one setting, and it's not like watching a film streaming over the web, uh, on DVD, or, or even in HD. Seeing all these films on the big screen in such a short amount of time really rejuvenates your affection for just the act of watching movies. I saw more than 15 films in 10 days, and only two of them were in English. And while there are too many to recap right now, I, I do want to share some interviews with the directors behind three films that really surprised me and challenged my ideas about conventional filmmaking. The first director is Wim Wenders, and I have to admit that the only film of his that I'd seen before the Berlinale was Wings of Desire. And it's one of those films that the first time I saw it, it went completely over my head. And I think that initially turned me off to his films. And so I walked into his 3D film, Pina, uh, not skeptical, but a bit worried that I wouldn't connect with it. But Pina is an intriguing film, and there's no story, there's no characters. It's a record of the dance art of Pina Bausch, uh, Germany's celebrated contemporary choreographer. Bausch and Wenders are both well-known artists in their native country, and so the pairing might seem obvious, but it took some time for the project to come together, as Wenders explains. The film didn't just come about because there was 3D. The film came about because the two of us wanted to make this film for a long time. Actually, since our very first meeting where it was me, so enthusiastic that I just babbled on and, and said, Pina, we should do a film together one day. And that was a quarter of a century ago in 85, and she only smiled and lit another cigarette and didn't say anything, so I didn't really know what that smile meant and only in the coming years, that smile became more interested, and then Pina started to, on her own, say, you've been talking about a movie, we should do it. And then it became even more urgent, and she really insisted that we should do it, and that was through the 90s. And, of course, she had worked with Fellini, but Fellini had used her as an actress and not used her art and her, what she had invented. She, he used her as herself. And the two of us wanted to make a film about her invention, dance theatre, and about her work. And uh, the film just never happened. And not because I didn't want to, but I would at any given moment, from the moment we met, at any given moment, drop everything I was doing to make that film with her. That was a, an ardent desire, and it remained that desire. But the thing was that when became serious on her part and she really called it in, I had to tell her the truth because I really thought about it, I imagined it, I had sleepless nights, I saw dance movies, I saw all the films done with Pina and about her work and I had to tell her the truth, which was I can't do it much differently. My tools and my craft cannot do more than what you already have. You have recordings of Kaffee Müller mm -hmm. or Sacre, and she even collaborated on some for television, and I had to tell her, Pina, I can do a little better, 
Of course, I would be very careful and I'd do my very best, but it will be gradually better and it will not be essentially different. I felt in order to do justice to her unique art, it had to be essentially different. Because each time I sat there, from the first time till the last time in all of her plays, each time I sat there, something happened that was indescribable. Something happened with my body and with my awareness of what was she was showing on stage and the way it concerned me and everybody around me. People were so concerned and the physicality of what these dancers did and what they showed us about men and women was so emotional and the impact was such that I felt cameras had no access to that magic. I didn't find it in any of the dance movies I saw. I didn't find it in what I imagined I could do. I thought it was me who didn't know and who couldn't see through this wall. I thought, eventually, I'll have a revelation. And it took a long time. It took 10 years. And every year we met again and again. And Pina only after a while said, when then? When? Come on. And I said, I still don't know, Pina. I, I tell you, I, I would do it tomorrow if I knew if I knew how. And then happened the for me really revelation. And I, I it came from an area where I expected it less, it came from technology. I had not expected that. I didn't know what was missing. I thought it was me who wasn't able to make that step towards into the kingdom of her art. And then I saw it in front of my eye. It was a little concert film, U2 in 3D, May 2007 in Cannes. U2 were going to play on the steps, and that was the attraction. And the first time I put on these glasses, not knowing what was going to happen, and it happened from the first frame on, I almost didn't hear the music anymore, although I like it a lot, and didn't watch the film anymore. I saw the potential of this thing. I saw the potential of what was rudimentary and jerky and rough and full of faults, but I saw the door that I had been waiting to open, open because of technology. At the end of that screening, I called Pina from inside the theater, and I only had to say, Pina, I think I know now how. And that year, we started to prepare this, finally prepared, and be seriously about it, and talk, and select the plays, and think about how to film them, and of course, only thinking it was wishful thinking, because I couldn't prove that the technology could do it. I, there was no way to prove it. The 3D films that existed were, in fact, still full of flaws. The first films that came, I was happy that Pina didn't see them, were horror movies and, and then animation movies. I had no film that could prove that my wish could come true, but I believed that it was the answer. Even Avatar came after we had already shot for an entire month. And it, I was happy when I saw it. I was really relieved because it showed that technology could go much further than it had until then. And of course, Avatar was a groundbreaking film in every regard. But we had already started on that route, and the route was into a, an unknown territory of that technology because we wanted it to use differently than it had ever been used before.
Stereoscopic filmmaking comes with a strict set of rules concerning framing, camera movement, focus, and lighting. So I was curious how a filmmaker like Vendors approached a medium that seems more technical than intuitive. Were there rules that he followed or rules that he broke? We were forced to follow these rules a little closer than, for instance, Cameron himself. Because he did things against all against the rules. He did a lot of over-shoulder shots, and that's the first thing my stereographer showed me why that was bad. And the fact that Cameron could break so many rules was that he had a strong story that pulled everything through and even pulled us through the flaws and pulled us through the fact that some of the live action didn't look so good. There was a strong story and a, good, a very fast pace of editing. And because we didn't have a story, and because our subject was somebody's art and were, was a body language to be explored, our, in our film, faults showed more. They did show more, or they would have showed more. So we had to avoid some, avoid some rules more strictly, especially as our aim was a very natural 3D that would make itself forgotten as quickly as possible, so it was not it would not remain attraction, but it would remain a necessity. And people would get used very quickly, and the film tries in the first minutes to slowly bring you there, and then forget about it, and you're there. So and that was a tall order, because that was maybe the most difficult, and it would have been easy sometimes to go for more of an effect, and to stretch the space, and to make it more awesome. And But we didn't want that. We wanted a natural, uh, <coughs> elegant feeling of space and movement that wouldn't draw attention to itself because we wanted, wanted to draw attention as much as possible to Pina's art. So I think I followed more of the rules and we invented some of our own. And one rule we inv invented after the first days of shooting and after the first cuts we made, because we made some cuts right away because to understand it, we dropped lens changes. We made the entire film with one set of lenses, and very rarely, maybe 10% of the film, are with a slightly closer lens, but it's only minimal. It was just a couple of degrees more for close-up, but, so, but it wouldn't distort space in any remarkable different way. Not only because lens changes cost so much time, they do, because you have to start the whole um, space architecture again in the camera. We just realized our eyes have one focal length, so to speak, and we tried to find the one that was closest possible um, subjectively, and then we did stick to this one set of lenses, and that helped us to overcome some of the flaws and some of the drawbacks, especially in editing, and some of the feeling that you have in a lot of films where space, I mean, you you're thrown from one sort of space feeling into another. So we used one set of lenses. With your experience now with 3D, are you thinking about shooting everything? Will it be fine also in 3D or will it be in 2D? I think it's very essential that whatever you do, if it's a story or if it's a documentary, that there is an affinity to this medium. And the medium doesn't necessarily have an affinity to everything. And I see lots of stories where I just wonder why is that in 3D? It is a, tr it is a, f a ride, 
Sure, and a lot of these movies only wannabes take you on a ride, and sometimes it's fun when it's well done. But we didn't want to use it, the technology for that fun aspect. We wanted it to be a very phenomenological tool to, to be inside reality and to take the audience into this art and into the world of Pina and not, I didn't want more from 3D than enter her own space. And space is the condition of these dances. That is their primary element. And 3D allowed us to be with them in that element. And that's why I wanted to use it and for no other gimmick. So we had to strip it of a lot of things that you would do. And we were tempted every now and then to go a little further and do that and that. And, and of course, it's tempting, but it wouldn't have helped Pina's art to shine. So we dropped a lot of it and, and tried to just use it as natural as possible. And of course, I had the great advantage that my stereographer, who was also a pioneer in the field, and when we started working in 2007, 8, until we shot, there was no rig in Europe that you could rent that didn't have his name on it. He built them, hand-built some of them. Of course, now there's much more equipment, and many companies do fantastic stuff. It went too far. But we had Alain and his prototypes in the beginning, but that was the technology. But the great thing he offered us, and that's the great gift he gave to this film, and really tremendous gift, his main interest was the physiology of seeing. How do two eyes see, and what can two cameras do to get as close as possible? And to not overdo the space, and to not strain the, mind, the brain, but to get to a natural act of seeing. And he was very happy when that was the first thing I asked him for, because he said, yeah, it could be done. It's not quite yet there, but we could get there. And I understand what you want, and I'm very happy to help you with that. But we still have to push it a lot, because I can, we can do it tomorrow, but it would be not the 3D you're dreaming of. It would be, it would call attention to itself. If you wanted, want your audience to forget about it, we have to work hard. And we need to, and you need to f follow some rules, because otherwise you will, you will interfere and you will, and space, the space that the cameras create will override the space of your actors. What do you mean, like with sound and with color? There is first the stage that you want to look at as natural as possible. And we're maybe at this point with 3D now. And then comes the point where you can use it subjectively. You start to dissociate sound or color from the natural look. Would you mind theorizing a little bit on, on the possibilities of using 3D as a psychological means? It is not all that different in post-production, except that you treat two strains of information separately all the time. In terms of color correction or what you do with your sound, it is not essentially different with what you do before in film. Of course, sound is a new challenge because you have it, you try to create, at least we try to, a different transparency of sound and because 3D directs your eyes more than flat screen in 2D, your eyes are more guided to what you see. Um, you are concentrating on something closer than 
than normally. And normally your eyes can wander much more. Your eyes in 3D don't wander around. They, they are more locked on where the cameras are converging. So in mixing and in sound, that meant that also sound, you wanted to hear things more precisely that were exactly where your eyes are looking. So we realized we mixed a little differently and we tried to create a different transparency and we tried to follow the eyes more with our sounds. So that was a first for me as well. But for instance, in color correction, it, it looked like it wasn't all that different. It was a technical challenge because two cameras don't see the same colors. Especially as, technically, you can only do it with a semi-transparent mirror. And that mirror creates polarization, if you want it or not. And the two images have a different polarization. And there's nothing you can do about it at this moment. So your two images, for instance, in our case, on the stage, one stage surface shines and the other image does not shine. It cannot, because it po the light is polarized, and that is the way it can be done at this moment, with, with creating, through the polarization effect, two separate images. So you have one image which is with a shiny surface on the floor, and another with a, with a complete flat surface. So, and colors don't necessarily look the same. So it is a challenge in many ways, and there are still inbuilt flaws. That's obvious, not only in movement, but of also, for instance, in the fact that you never have two images that are the same. And, and rain, for instance, was a big problem. We had this play with this beautiful water and rain. And these, when the water is splashing and coming towards us, the two cameras definitely see two different, especially when it comes very close, they they see two different things. We had, at one moment, a drop of water on the mirror. And two cameras, these two cameras, see the water, see that drop in different places. So the technology has a lot of inbuilt disasters. <laughs> and <coughs> and uh, it's hard to imagine to make them disappear as long as we have to shoot with two cameras. And probably the industry eventually will find a way to to have lenses that can get close to each other enough to come to six, seven centimeters. And because that's still the distance of your eyes. And eventually the, the industry might create cameras that overcome some of the flaws. But right now, it is still an approximation. The space is still created only in your mind and we try our best to simulate the two eyes but it is not two eyes two cameras are never going to be really two eyes we can try to get close but there'll never be two eyes the next interview is with canadian filmmaker guy madden who i met at the opening reception for hauntings fragments at the canadian embassy in berlin madden is another one of those directors who'd I'd heard of, but for some reason or another, I'd just never seen any of his films. And so Fragments uh, was my first real exposure to his work, and I became an instant fan. So uh, by, by Fragments, uh, do you mean that these are fragments of films that have been lost and now are, are, uh, have been returned to as close to their all, former form yeah, as you can get they, them? Yeah, they exist only as either um, synopses uh, called from old variety reviews, or from um, reviews in, in magazines, like uh, there's a Mitsuguchi uh, lost film called Out of College, 
and the synopses just come from like Mitsuguchi's diaries and things like that. So, and so, so these are real? Yeah, they, they really existed. Um, in, in, in a couple of cases, they're aborted films, films that had been start, had started production and were called off. And in, and in a couple of cases, they're uh, unrealized films, films that almost came to be and then didn't. So they, they kind of haunt me. I always think of these titles as, as things that sort of wander the landscape of film history without, uh, any, you know, without being allowed on consecrated ground. So they're kind of restless little spirits. So, so, so many interesting uh, cinematic techniques have, have been lost uh, to time as well, you know, with, with these films. Yeah. Uh, did you try to uh, restore imitate, any of the, imitate well, them or restore them? I never tried to imitate the directors, like Joseph von Sternberg, I could never be, I could never be any of these directors, as a matter of fact. I just called vocabulary units from the entire history of cinema. It's such a short history anyway, it's just over a century. So I, I was just taking stuff, sh it's shot digitally, you know, I wasn't even using film. So it's, it's stuff you know, mixing old and new stuff. I just thought our, our vocabularies, uh, our, our speaking vocabularies changed so slowly, relatively, but, but film just sort of exploded. So I thought, why not just go back to day one and use all, like stuff, stuff that was coined yesterday, stuff that was coined in 1894. I love how expressionistic these films are. I, they're short, so they don't have any time to beat around the bush. They gotta be uninhibited, so yeah, they're, they're expressionistic. That's for sure. Thanks. Uh, did you do you have a uh, is there do you have a cinematographer that you work with usually, or did you shoot all these yourself? Uh, my producer Jody Shapiro here shot uh, some of these, and I shot the others. And um, but uh, sometimes if if someone comes to the set, I just give them a camera and tell them to to get some coverage. So some of them, the all foot one was shot by a guy named Darcy Fair, who's an actor in. Another one, and uh, you know, um, so uh, we just let people shoot. I, I just like uh, it's like spilling a box of crayons on a table with a bunch of kids around it, and and just let them go at it because I wanted it to be sort of primitive, early, the kindergarten days of cinema. You know, everyone was on their way out the door to another event, but cinematographer and producer Jody Shapiro did spare a few moments to answer some questions. So, guy tells me that you're the producer, and that you also shot some of these, some of the films in yeah, Hauntings so, One. Yeah, yeah, I shot a couple of the Hauntings. Um, I can't even remember which ones now, to tell you the truth, because we, we were we were shooting so many at the same time. I think Hubby does the washing, and um, uh, well, you know, there's so much going on at the same time that uh, many people have cameras. So I just I can't remember which uh, which ones I actually did. When you're shooting for Guy, uh, what? It, well, what's, uh, what's your collaboration like? Does he just kind of let you go hog wild, or is he very specific about what he's looking for? Um, it's, uh, when you're shooting, you're, you're, you're pretty much allowed, they're, they're almost shot like documentaries in some ways, uh, unless we're doing sort of a very set-up tableau scene where he knows what he wants from the actors. A lot of it is just catching action as it happens. And when he directs, he almost directs like a silent film director. Most of the time when we're not shooting with sound, he'll he'll tell the person to look happy, look sad, move your hand, so you always sort of know where to move the camera around. It's a real real sort of organic flowing process. You never know where you're gonna, where, where you're gonna go with it. Um, so uh, I would say it's, it's, it's a big mixture of things, but mostly it's a, it's a pretty good free-for-all. Would you consider yourself a cameraman or are you primarily a producer? I, well, I, I wear many hats, uh, produce and I shoot, I'm a photographer as well, um, but no, I only really shoot for Guy. Uh, I don't think I would, I, if anyone wanted to come and ask me to uh, be a director of photography on their film, I think I'd have to turn them down because 
I, I work in more of sort of an experimental way, um, quick lighting and and Super 8 and Bolex 16 millimeter format. We, we've been working in uh, digital video lately, but it's really more uh, about the accidents that happen than perfection. So. <laughs> The last filmmaker I had the opportunity to speak with uh, was Made in Poland director uh, Zemek Wojciszek. Made in Poland is his statement about a schizophrenic Polish society that mixes romanticism and Catholicism, messianic beliefs and rebellion, right-wing ideals and left-wing ideals. Uh, originally filmed in color, Wojciszek and uh, cinematographer Jola Delewska reduced the image to gritty shades of red, black, and white, uh, punctuated with jolts of animation that looked like it was scraped off the wall of a public bathroom. Uh, made in Poland, uh, you, you mentioned that you shot it in a much different way than, than, uh, than how it is presented uh, now on the screen. Yeah, you, you know, we started the work in a, in, a, in, a standard, in a standard conventional way, so we decided to, to do a, the movie on a traditional film, so uh, uh, 30, 35. Um, you know, we don't have, uh, in Poland, we don't have a strong tr tradition of uh, 60, 60 millimeters. Because he, it was like, you know, the, 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 the TV was always uh, videotaped and, uh, and movies were, were made on, on 35. Because we were, uh, by, by many, many years, a part of the communist bloc. Uh, we had uh, our own uh, film stock. We, the, the most of the 90% of the movies were were shot on Orvo um, Orvo film, uh, so is German in German is German stock. So uh, it, it it was very very cheap, so no one cared about you know 16 millimeters. So y you wouldn't find too many too many Polish movies done on 16 millimeters. It's totally totally unknown. So we knew that uh, that we uh, we would do it on uh, on color codex stock. We we imagined it will be it will be in color. It will be uh, very conventional. But you know, as um, as soon as we as we started the shooting, as soon as we uh, started the tests, because we uh, you know we, we shot almost the whole movie on video. Like seventy percent of the whole material you, you you saw in the movie was initially shot in the same interiors. And in the same exterior, so we we shot it on video just to check if everything's working, if it's uh, coming together somehow. We decided that it must be a little bit more um, experimental, so we decided to degrade the, the degrade the picture, and it was. Um, it was, you know, I, I have a, I had a really good DP here because uh, my uh, director of photography was Jola Delewska. She's quite well known in, in Europe. We um, we did some experiments with developing, yes, traditional way. So we got this 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 kind of grain, and it was then um, deepened by the, the digital um, processing. If I could, uh, if I. If I had the chance to do this film now, I'd be maybe I'd be more uh, favorable of, of doing this on digital and then uh, you know transferring this picture to something else on, on post-production. I'm I'm all the time watching uh, you know um, short films made by the cheapest uh, Nikon and Canon uh, 
the cameras and I'm amazed, I'm absolutely amazed. And this, the, the, the use of this cheap digital equipment totally transforms the way of telling, you know, telling a narrative. How does that affect your relationship with the cinematographer? Do you find uh, that it's easier to access the camera as a director, or do, are you, do you still want that collaboration between director and cinematographer? No, I never believed in the separation. We are, one, uh, we are one organism, you know? We work together. You know, I really don't believe that, uh, you know, good cinematography is beautiful pictures. I strongly resent this. So what is good cinematography? I think it's, it should be creative. It should reflect somehow the, the nature of the world we live in, which is, uh, it's like, you know, you, you, you can, it's, maybe you can say, you know, the Mozart is better than punk uh, rock because it was, he, he's more you know, melodic, he, he has better harmonies and he's more classical, yes, but uh, it doesn't reflect the nature of the modern world. And I think cinematography now should be in touch with uh, how we perceive, yes, uh, the picture in general as, uh, as a reflection of, of, of the world we live in. Mm -hmm. And uh, it may be ugly, it may be nervous, it may be beautiful on one hand, and uh, it may be um, irritating and ugly or something you can, you, you'd like to forget about. I really believe in this. Especially if you do, if you do art house stuff, uh, you can't escape it, you, you can't uh, resist it. You've mentioned that Made in Poland has played very well to European audiences. Do you feel that this is the kind of film that would play well uh, outside, like in North America? I don't know. It has a very strong local context, and um, we'll see. It's you know, it's I'm just after the second day of its international screening, so uh, it is the first festival, international festival, we're showing this 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 film at. So I'm really curious about it. This film is, um, in some part, my personal commentary on how I, you know, look at uh, Poland and this generation. And you know, this is something really uh, in the air that when you live in a country that is provincial, that is outside all those, you know, world affairs, and you, when you don't have any, you know, if you don't have any uh, important. Uh, contemporary thinkers and the contemporary philosophers everything's uh, is happening above you so it, it's it's uh, somehow on, on several of course there is this this the, the most basic level is the unemployment poverty the sense of you know that you don't have your own place that you don't have your identity but it's the most basic thing that I, I, but on some intellectual level it, this is this frustration I feel among my colleagues who are you know well educated they have really good jobs they are filmmakers they, they are writers they are journalists but there is some this, this kind of this, this sense of frustration that you you are part of culture that is uh, outside you know the, the mainstream what, whatever happens you are outside the mainstream. Even if you if you are fascinated by some contemporary you know European philosopher or a thinker or whatever, he's uh, he's not from Poland. You can it's it's really hard to relate to him because he it's like uh, you 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 sense that your culture doesn't produce philosophers, so it's frustrating. Yes.
So even though it's unlikely that Made in Poland will be seen theatrically outside of Europe or Asia, it's a good example of how the politics that affect the stories and the aesthetic of Polish cinema stretch all the way back to the days of the Eastern Bloc. As an American, uh, that's the real treat of attending an international film festival in another country, seeing films that will go on to wide distribution and films that will probably never be screened theatrically in the States. Uh, you can't know, and so each film becomes an experience uh, to be savored. I think the best way to describe the Berlinale is like tasting my first gourmet meal after only eating fast food my whole life, and I can't wait to go back for a second helping. You can find more podcasts, articles, and blogs, including a blog written by John Bailey ASC about Vim Vendor's film Pina at www.theasc.com. And don't forget to check the show notes under the info tab in iTunes for more information on this podcast. This has been the American Cinematographer Podcast. Thanks for listening. You can find more podcasts, blogs, and exclusive ASC content by logging onto theasc.com. This podcast has been brought to you by the American Society of Cinematographers, a nonprofit organization dedicated to promoting the art and craft of cinematography.